If you dream of changing the world, but you're not sure where to start, the Add Value to Entrepreneurs podcast will help you transform your life and business. This podcast is for entrepreneurs who want more freedom and fulfillment from their work so they can live the life that they desire. You deserve it, and it is possible. It's time for you to add value. Are you struggling with stress? Do you feel like life is out of control? Do you run out of time to get your to-do list tackled? Well, we have a special gift for you. Stop by addvaluemindset.com and claim your free gift today. Today's guest is my friend, Chris Natsky. Chris is not only a champion himself, but he's been training others to find their own inner champion for over four decades. As an eighth degree black belt, master instructor, and former national taekwondo champion, Chris ranks in the top 1% of all martial artists in the world. Now as a life leadership coach, keynote speaker, and author, his passion is sharing his unique brand of black belt leadership so others may discover the most empowered version of themselves, leading to clarity of purpose, increased confidence, and the courage to take inspired action to make their dreams come true. Chris Natsky and Robert talk about business and how martial arts training really helped Chris think differently about growing his business and impact in the community. He uses martial arts to encourage students to pay it forward, requires them to do chores cheerfully, and random acts of kindness. These concepts of putting others first really are powerful in personal development and business growth. Chris also understands the power of story and helps people to craft memorable stories with a purpose. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have this conversation and just uh, share your journey with the world. Great. It's great to be here, Robert. Great to be here. So I typically just let my guests share their journey into entrepreneurship okay. and and what they're doing now and 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 then we'll dig some of the lessons out based on on where their journey's taken them. Excellent, excellent. Well, the whole journey on entrepreneurship probably well, it started now quite a while ago in 1995, but it came as a result of following a lifelong dream of wanting to own my own professional martial arts studio. So I uh, at the time, right out of college, I was um, landed a job, a really good job, actually, with the top consumer products company in the United States and was working with them as a sales executive. But it always had this burning desire to transform lives through martial arts. It was one of the probably probably the most impactful aspect of my life coming up until that time and um, had been moved from several places across the United States. So I started my career in consumer product sales in Chicago, went to Southern California for four years, then got promoted to the general offices in Cincinnati. And after a two year stint there, uh, was promoted and brought out to Denver. And at the time um, I was married and my wife at the time, she and I had been together since high school. And she said, you know, you've, as long as I've known you, all you've ever wanted to do was own a martial arts school. And I know that you're doing okay at your job and you're, you're liking it and you're doing very well, but I know that's not where your heart is. Mm -hmm. So I said, you're absolutely right. So she encouraged me to um, start on the path of owning a professional martial arts school. And so what I did was, is I, um, I actually started a program at my son's grade school. So leased it out three nights a week and got it up to about 50 students. And um, along that time, one of my, the moms in the program was a real estate broker and she knew my dream, my, my intention. I started this in April um, and she said, well, you know, if you want to get a commercial site, which it was my goal to 
you know, maybe have one start looking in about a year. She said, you really need to start looking now. So April, May, I start looking. Well, wouldn't you know it, by July, I had signed a lease. And by October or November 1st, I opened up my, my school. <laughs> so things went warp speed, uh, but took those 50 students, brought them over. Within a year, I had 200. Within uh, five years, I had 500 students at one location. And that was my first a foray, if you will, into entrepreneurship. Nice. And obviously, you recognize that the, the life transformation aspect is is really what empowers that that growth, right? I think recognizing that martial arts is is more than just a physical activity, you know, it's it's a mental activity and and targeting targeting children at that at that level is, is really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and also just from a, I'll share with you two things that I share a lot with my life coaching clients is number one is that entrepreneurship for me is the best personal development workshop you can ever take, right? Because you have, you, there's nowhere to hide all the issues, all the fears, all the whatever's have a tendency to pop up and you have to look at them if you want to be successful. You can't stuff them away somewhere. And the other thing that I share is, is that moving, at least from my experience, from the corporate world into entrepreneurship was not only the most exhilarating time in my life, it was also the most petrifying time in my life. So both of those things kind of worked in concert. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's been now 27, 28 years since I made that and I've had opportunities since that happened of companies that have come and, and have recruited me and asked me to come on board with them. And I've come close a couple of times, but at this point in time, entrepreneurship is what is, is the, I realize that's the lifestyle that I want to live, being able mm -hmm. to make an impact, but also be able to do it on the things that I'm able to create in the container that I create versus doing it within someone else's organization. Nice. So has your studio run? since 1995 to the present? Well, it has, although I have a little caveat because this is the second half of my entrepreneurial story. So I had that school, as I said, started it in 1995 and did quite well. It, um, it moved through up to 500 students in the 05, 06 timeframe. All of us and entrepreneurs will remember the 08, 09 recession. So things tended to soften a little bit. And I was also going through some life changes at that time. And so I, uh, I actually sold it to one of my students in 2013 so that I could focus on now my current career, which is working as a life leadership coach, a speaker, an author, and a um, workshop facilitator. Nice. So let's talk a little bit about that transition. You mentioned the transition from... Um, corporate to entrepreneurship was both exhilarating and petrifying. How was the transition from, from martial arts professional studio owner to stage speaker life coach? Well, it's interesting because it wasn't as petrifying, right? <laughs> uh, because I'd already gone through that. Although I will say it was a challenge because when you create a business like a martial arts school, and you put your heart and soul into it, it almost becomes an extension of you, 
right? And I think many entrepreneurs have had that experience. And in fact, for me, I had wanted, I knew that I wanted to move on and do some different things for quite some while, from quite for quite some time, but I didn't really feel like I had found the right person to take over the school because I still had an emotional attachment to those individuals, my staff, all of my staff I had trained since they were kids and now they were in their twenties working for me. And I just had a real heartfelt connection to all my students. So I, I did find a friend of mine in the martial arts industry who relocated to Denver, who initially made that purchase. And then he actually sold the business to one of my students, but the transition was challenging from that place, but it was also not as bad as before because now I knew I had a, I had a, um, a, a basis of work, a foundation of work to build off of. I knew I had been through some of these challenges in the past and I knew I had survived them. And interestingly enough, Robert, when I look back at the work that I'm doing today relative to the work that I was doing when I owned the martial arts studio, it's very much similar in terms of what I'm doing. My audience has changed. So I'm not teaching people necessarily each and every day how to kick and punch, although I still do that. I'm still very active. We have three schools in our martial arts organization here in Colorado, and I still actively teach quite a bit, but I don't own the schools. But the lessons of moving through obstacles, focus, concentration, uh, being able to move through obstacles with ease and grace, all those things that I taught in martial arts, I'm now able to do that from a speaker and a coaching standpoint. Nice. Well, and, and obviously there's a big community element to the work that, that you were creating. Yeah. And, and I think maybe that's different because of a, the martial arts connection and in community. I mean, it's different than a regular gym, right? It's different than even, yes. even maybe a ninja gym that, yeah. you know, that are more, are more recent that, that martial arts classes are done primarily in groups. They're, they're primarily, you know, focused on the development aspect is just as important as, as the physical aspect. And so I think there's a uniqueness to, to martial arts. So well, let's talk a little bit about the power of community and, yeah. and, and why that's been so helpful for you in, in, in your process as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think you hit it right on the head. I'll give you an example. I learned this probably after having my school for 10, 15 years. So, I mean, I knew, I always knew that community was incredibly important and I loved being part, I still do love being part of a community uh, for all the reasons that you stated. But I had this one instance, again, as I said, about 15 years into me owning the school, we had had a martial art program and then also a separate aerobic kickboxing program. So this is a generally it was geared toward females. Uh, a lot of moms did the program. So when their kids were training, they could get their workout. And I had this one day, it was, I believe it was a Tuesday at around five o'clock. I had an instructor who had told me a couple of weeks in advance, she couldn't teach the class and asked if I'd sub for her. So the class was going to start at 515. So I went in at 5 p.m. to start setting up the room and getting the music all queued up. And I noticed there was about six ladies in there already for class. And they were chit-chatting with each other. They're warming up. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. Almost every one of those ladies had been with me for anywhere from four to six years. So wow. if, they would have, if they would have trained in martial arts, they would have already 
could have received their black belt, maybe even their second degree black belt. And I'm sitting there watching them and I'm going, all we're doing is teaching them to kick and punch a bag, but they show up each and every day. And here they are 15 minutes early chit-chatting with each other and boom, it hit me. It was the community. That's why they were there. I mean, I happened to be a vehicle. I, I owned the punching bags they could hit, and that was probably fun to do. And there was a benefit of getting in physical shape, but they were there because of the community. Nice. And once you once you recognize that that there's this this power and connection in community. So let's look at that idea of community building from from a business owner's perspective. So now that you recognize that there's more to this than than just getting in shape. Yeah. What changes or, or things did you do differently to to be intentional about community? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I did and, you know, a lot of the things that happen in the martial arts world, um, the martial art. Let me just give this as a as a preframe. The martial arts industry in the United States is a relatively young industry. OK, so martial arts basically came to the United States in the 1950s. And most of it was taught by uh, men who had trained martial arts in the military. Right. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot of finesse to what they were doing. It's pretty hardcore stuff. And then you had instructors coming from Japan and Korea, and that was a hard style as well. So around 1980, something happened to the industry, and that was something called the movie The Karate Kid. Okay? <laughs> and now all of a sudden, martial arts school owners had this huge influx of eight, nine, 10-year-old kids, and they didn't know how to deal with them. So we had to evolve as a community, as, uh, as an industry, on how do you deal with kids and we realized one of the ways to do that was to combine a strong sense of teaching martial arts with a strong sense of developing character. Mm. And I think the old model used to be that you'd invite anyone in. They were mostly men in their 20s. And you just weeded out the ones that didn't have the strong character and perseverance. You just mm. weeded them out naturally. Now you have this all influx of students where in order to retain them, you had to develop that. Big mind, big shift, right? And so one of the things I'm probably most proud of, there are several things in terms of what we did with our program, but one of the things that I enacted uh, pretty early on is when students were getting ready to test for their black belt. And this is now anywhere from a three to three and a half year journey before they were eligible to test. And then Prior to their testing, they would have to go into a very intensive 16-week or four-month training program to get them ready for the test. And one of the things that I did very early on is I connected them with one of my staff members, one of the instructors, as their mentor to take them through the process. And then what ended up happening is we developed little subcultures of little families within the community. So they had people that they aspired to be like that was that were mentoring them through the black belt program. And then those people learned how to mentor as well. So it became a culture of not just your own existence, you're not survival of the course, but literally coming together as a group, as a family to get through a very challenging period and then be able to give back by helping others move through that process. 
And that is, I think, was probably one of the key pieces to our ability to develop and grow. I, I kind of dropped the number before at our peak, we were at 500, we actually had 504 active students. When I started the school in 1995, the average school in the United States was 80 students. So we were able to really multiply that. And I think it was because of building that culture of community. Well, and and your willingness to prepare other leaders to teach classes, right. right? I think one of the big challenges for many entrepreneurs in many industries is I'm the expert. I'm the only one that can do it. I've got to teach everybody. And of course, if you have to teach everybody, you limit your school to 80 80 right. people that's or right. less, that's right? Because right. if that's the average, that means there's a bunch of schools with 20 or 30 or 40. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And what you're saying reminds me of two of my favorite quotes from John Maxwell, <laughs> the leadership uh, the leadership guru, right? And he says, number one is if, uh, if you're leading and nobody's following, you're just out for a walk. All right. So that's number one. But number two is leaders don't develop followers. Leaders develop other leaders. Hmm. And I think that sometimes when we are in a position of being an entrepreneur, we're a solopreneur, we're thinking of surviving on our own. And I think that there is a an element of that that is beneficial. I think there's there's parts of our businesses that we need to learn to do um, that help in our own growth and development. But for me personally, the times when I own my school and still in leading an organization that just totally fire me up is when I'm teaching other people to do the same work that I learned how to do and seeing them do it well and sometimes even surpass me in their ability to deliver. And and it's a it's a challenging thing to be willing to delegate to be it's it's hard for an entrepreneur to let go. It's hard for an entrepreneur to to even know how do I explain this or teach this? But that's where the real power comes, right? And and you know in in martial arts, like a, like many other skill sets, doing it takes you to one level. That's right. Teaching it takes you to a, to a completely different level. And so, when an entrepreneur even hires a VA, and they have to teach their process to to a VA, that transfer of of knowledge requires the entrepreneur to be able to teach, which takes his process and skill set to another level. And they don't even recognize that in, you know, and so there's, there's real power in the way you created this mentorship opportunity, because now you've got students teaching students, you're delegating and passing on, which develops a community of trust, because now you're empowering others to lead others. And, and so, yeah, that, that creates an incredible culture, but it also elevates everybody's game because each of those mentors get so much better because now they're teaching that same skill they learned at an, at another level. Yeah. It's, it's such a super powerful, you, you uh, positioned that so well, Robert, you know, and it it made me think, you know, I, I dropped a couple of numbers around here in terms of how much growth we were able to experience. And that journey from 50 to 200 happened in in a relatively short period of time. It happened in about a year. However, I got stuck at 200 for a couple of years Hmm. and and I go a little bit above and I go back. It's because during that time I was doing everything. Mm -hmm. I was teaching the majority of the class, if not all of them. I was doing the introductory lessons. I was answering the phone. I was even mopping the mats and cleaning the toilets, right? 
<laughs> and so I kept having people, I'd go to conferences and people would say, delegate, delegate. And quite honestly, my friend, you couldn't pull any of that stuff out of my Kung Fu grip. <laughs> and, and so finally I had a gal who was my program director who I finally hired and her name is Rachel. And Rachel had been begging me to be a kickboxing instructor. She took the classes, but I had never really trained her to teach. And that was my domain. I wasn't going to let anybody teach those classes. And all of a sudden, she begged and begged and begged and finally said, fine, you can do it. Well, <laughs> I let her teach this class. And Robert, she totally blew me away. Totally blew me away. She was an amazing teacher. And that was a huge pivotal moment for me because I was like, wow, what have I been? Number one, I've been holding her back. I've been holding the growth of the school back only because of my own insecurities, right? Of not wanting to let go. And when I did that and I started developing and training other people, that's when we got to the level of 500 students. But I could still be floating around in, you know, just hitting my head up against that ceiling if I wouldn't have taken that move. Mm. Such such great lessons. And, and and obviously once you cross that threshold, you're you're like, why didn't I do this two years ago? <laughs> when I do my coaching with business owners, that's one of the first things we talk about is, you know, within their business, what are the roles and responsibilities? And where is there an, an, an instance, an example of where you can delegate? I call it part of my five D's of keeping agreements. So, you know, many entrepreneurs get overwhelmed, right? There's so many things we're doing. So the first thing I have them do is they detail it. They just take a piece of paper and they write down everything that they've got rattling around in that noggin of theirs. Sometimes that's the best thing is just getting it out of your head, right? <laughs> then the step number two is, is to delete it. And now what does delete mean? Well, that means what are some things on that list that at this point in time, you're just going to choose not to do. You're just going to take them off your list. That sometimes is very difficult for people. <laughs> number next is, you might say, well, there's some things that I don't need to do this month, but I'm going to need to do them in maybe two, three months. Well, that's you defer it. You put it in what's called a someday maybe list, right? So what ends up happening there is, okay, it's currently September. We're in right now. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do it this month, but I will do it in November. And you actually have an active system where you place it in every month you review it to see what you want to put into your your project list. So you detail it, you you delete it, you defer it. Then number four is what we're talking about is you delegate it. Where do you have an opportunity, either in people you've developed to take over that or people you can hire, as you said, a, a virtual assistant. So you've done those four Ds. And now once you've done that is you've whittled down your list. So now you can do it. And I've seen people go from lists of 30 items to five or six. And just think about the clarity you get when you're able to do that. And when you get clarity, that's where expansion happens. That's where creativity happens. And that's where you start being the leader of your business versus the business leading you. Oh, yeah. So powerful. So good. All right. So we started this conversation about community and talking about the internal community that you created. But I also know that you've, you've created something that that allows your community of, of students to impact their community in, in meaningful ways. Would you share how that's, yeah. what that is and, and how that's helped? Yeah, well, I'm gonna go back to the, um, 
I'm going to go back to the example of when we get students ready to test for black belt. So um, we do something, I think, pretty unique. And I told you that they spend those four months getting ready. And so I'll just give you a, a couple of things they have to do physically. In four months, they have to do 4,000 push-ups. <laughs> yes, in four months now. They have to do 4,000 crunches. They have to spar 120 rounds. So they have to do all this physical things. But what I'm probably most excited about and what I'm most proud of from a legacy standpoint is they have to do a whole piece of personal and community development during that time. So uh, they have to do 400 random acts of kindness that are logged. We literally have a log. And, and in the last 12 years, we've generated over a quarter of a million random acts of kindness that they have to do. Now, I misspoke a little bit there, Robert. So the younger guys, you know, the 10 to 13-year-olds, 14, 15-year-olds, they have to do only 300 random acts of kindness, but they have to do 100 home chores. Parents love me, right? Um, they have to um, mentor someone for 10 sessions. They have to eat clean for an entire week. So no sugar, no alcohol, um, you know, no processed foods, you know, getting a, a 10 year old off, off beer is, is tough, but I make it happen. Right. I know. I, I, <laughs> and so the, final, the final thing they have to do is they have to spend a day in empathy. So they have to choose a 24 hour period where they are either spend it being blind, deaf, mute, or in a wheelchair so that they have an idea of what it is like to empathize with someone who has a physical affliction. And then we finish that up with, they all have to do a community service project collectively. So as I'm speaking to you here at the end of this month, we'll be generating money through a kickathon and we'll be donating it to the Rocky Mountain Down Syndrome Association. So all those candidates will collect money. They'll have to do a thousand kicks on a Saturday morning to generate that cash and then we'll go and walk with the recipients of that money uh, at the end of September. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, you so, know, when you do that, what happens is, and, you know, entrepreneurs might be sitting there and going, man, I don't know. I mean, because we, we basically build it right into the structure of what we do. But I think that every business has the opportunity to do something to that extent. Hmm. Because every business that we have is basically predicated on acts of service, right? And I always love this analogy. The, the super coach, uh, Steve Chandler, says, if you go to a vending machine and it's not working, there's generally a sign on it that says out of service. So if you want to build your business, ask yourself how you, your employees, your community can get into service. Mm. And when you do that, you generate this inertia where my experience is customers come from places I don't even know they exist, but it's keeping the energy flowing of serving in a profound way. I, I mean, it's so terrific. It's so terrific. And, and, and just incredible because the power of community inside your organization now impacting the power of community outside your organization and a little throwing a bone to the parents doesn't hurt any course, at all. Well, you know, here's the, <laughs> the one paying the bill. That's exactly <laughs> it. And, you know, 
I always knew that our school was doing well, Robert. Well, let me preface it by saying this. Kids today have a multitude of activities they can partake in. So when I opened up my martial arts school in 1995, I had six other martial arts schools in a two-mile radius of me. <laughs> but I did not consider them to be my competition. My competition was baseball mm. and football and ballet and gymnastics. You name kids' activity. And and today it's today it's exactly it's device in everybody's pocket. Exactly. It's, it's Netflix so I knew, streaming and games. Yes. So I knew that we were doing a good job when I would have parents come to me and say, Master Natsky, Jimmy doesn't want to come to class anymore. Would you please talk to him? Because he needs to be here because of all the lessons you and your staff are teaching him. They were asking me to talk their kids into staying, right? That's when I knew they were seeing the value. It wasn't about kicking and punching, although they got good at that too. It was about the intrinsic value they were getting from the experience. We will be right back after this short break. This episode is sponsored by Perfect Publishing, a different approach to publishing a book. Perfect Publishing carefully chooses heroes of hope who exemplify living a life they created through faith, hope, patience, and persistence. No matter what page you open to in this mini cube of hope, you will find a leader with a big heart. You will see you are not alone. The authors may share similar challenges that only hope and action could resolve. Get your free ebook at getadoseofhope.com. Welcome back. Let's get back to more greatness. Let's talk a little bit more about this day of empathy because there's a, there's a powerful exercise in, in that idea that that, I mean, most of us take for granted, I think, in just our life and health. And and as an entrepreneur, as, as a coach, you, you, you see people all the time sacrificing their body for convenience, sacrificing their health for convenience with the idea that, you know, I'll do it someday. But now you're planting some pretty powerful seeds in young people's minds of recognizing the gift that they have in their body in 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 their life yeah could you share a little bit more about yeah well you you've, you've i'm smiling because this is one of my favorite things to talk about so I'll, I'll i'll answer that in two ways number one is i use this with my life coaching clients i use it when i speak to groups particularly entrepreneurs i'll share a phrase that one of my coaches shared with me is we need to take care of ourselves so we can help take care of others. So notice I didn't say take care of others. It's help take care of others. And when you take care of yourself first, then you're giving from the overflow. Because we've all had situations where we're giving, we're giving, we're giving. We're basically, we have an empty tank because we don't have the energy anymore. We're not taking care of ourselves. And then we get resentful and cynical about our businesses and our lives. So we have to make a practice of taking care of ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, so we can give from the overflow. Because from that perspective, that's when we can be at our best. Because mm -hmm. if we aren't at our best, we're cheating the people, in my opinion, that we were here to serve. So that's the first thing. Well, I'm going to I'm going to catch you there because I know my wife, my wife in particular targets women. Yeah. 
and 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 everybody mentions right we reminded that the airlines tell you know announcement you know make sure you put on your oxygen mask first and then with women that are sitting next to their children they walk one by one and, and remind them because the motherly instinct is so strong of course to to put the mask on their children first because they want to take care of their children it's instinctive that we're, yes. we're, we're trying to push against that instinct and i think the challenge is that so many mothers give up themselves for their spouse they give up themselves for their children and and entrepreneurs can do the same thing give up themselves for their business and so recognizing this idea of self-care is is not selfish that's in fact it's 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 nothing further from being selfish because as i said before if we aren't taking care of ourselves and doing a good job of that we can't be at the best of ourselves to serve others. Case in point, I, I absolutely, I have a wonderful relationship with my mom. My mom's 83 now. Um, she was a nurse for over 50 years. Wow. And so she was serving constantly. Uh, I grew up in a household where my father was alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So he was there, but he wasn't really there. So my mom was not only working full time, but she was coming home each night and she was raising myself, my brother, and my sister. Wow. And I distinctly remember hearing my mom constantly say all the time, I'm so tired. Mm. I'm so tired. And, and, you know, during the course of my life, I remember my mom always saying to me, Chris, you can do anything you put your mind to. If you put your mind to, you can accomplish anything you want. But when it came to her, like getting more education or taking care of herself, she would always say, I can't do it because she was so devoted to just serving other people. And again, I, I have this huge respect for nurses because not only was my mom a nurse, but my her two sisters were. So I grew up in that environment, but I also saw how they were giving at their own expense. Hmm. And I think that you use the example of children Let's face it. Some of us as entrepreneurs, we view our businesses as our kids. Oh, I mean, absolutely. And so if we're not able to make that commitment to self, to take care of ourselves so we can help take care of others, I don't think we ever reach the pinnacle of what it can be to be a really functional, healthy entrepreneur. I just don't think we can do it. Yeah. And the entrepreneur becomes the bottleneck exactly. and, and sacrifices himself which means when when he gets sick or she gets sick because that's what's going to happen that your your body has you know two rules rest now or you will rest later that's right that's right <laughs> well and you know one of my favorite books and i recommend this when i when i coach entrepreneurs um is the e myth by michael gerber hmm. right one of my favorite books yeah so anyway i just remember i'm going to paraphrase his quote but it's something like um i was in my business versus working on my business. I was in my business. I was working day in and day out. I finally realized I was working for a lunatic. <laughs> and the lunatic was me, right? Yeah. And, you know, and I think some of that comes from, and I'll just speak from my own experience, some of that comes from fear, mm. right? If I don't do this, I'm not going to have enough. I'm going to miss this opportunity. And I think that sometimes in the short in the short period of time, that little juice can get us going. It can act as a catalyst. 
But if we maintain that and that becomes our only way of functioning, we begin to break down. It can't be fear-based. It has to be, hey, I'm going to move into my entrepreneurship from a standpoint of confidence. I have faith in myself and I'm not doing it from a standpoint of not enoughness, but I'm doing it from a standpoint that I am enough. And then from my enoughness is where I'm going to serve. Nice. All right. So we got to get back to the other half of the service. Oh, yes. So so I'm going to I want to share this story. This is one of my favorite stories, particularly when I speak to um, youth groups. I share this story. So I told you about how my students would have to train very intensively for their black belt that four month period. I had a student of mine that started with me when he was four years old. His name was Josh. And Josh started with me in what was called at the time, the Little Ninja Program, okay? Little boy, big fluffy head of red hair, big ears, freckles, not particularly talented. And you look at him and go, this kid will probably never, I don't know if he'll ever make it to be a black belt, but Josh kept showing up. And he started with me when he was four, and now he's 10 years old, and he's getting ready to test for his junior black belt. So... You know, I, I already shared with everybody all the things he had to do. He had to do all the push-ups and the crunches, whatever. But when we get to the standpoint of what does he need to do from his day of empathy, he hears day in the wheelchair and he's like, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Because he has an uncle, his uncle Jimmy. And uncle Jimmy was a Vietnam vet. And for Josh's entire life, Jimmy has been confined to a wheelchair. And he decides he's going to do his day of empathy in honor of his uncle. So he calls up his uncle and says, Uncle Jimmy, I'm testing for my black belt. I need to do a day of empathy. I'm going to do this day in the chair and I'm going to do it in honor of you. And Jimmy says, that's great, buddy. But I'll tell you what, I know you way too well. If you do one day in a chair, all you're going to be doing is popping wheelies down the street. If you're going to do this, you're going to do it right. You're going to do two days in the chair. And on the second day, Uncle Jimmy drove up Josh's driveway in his customized van, lowered the hydraulic lift. Josh rolled on, got lifted in the back seat. His dad went in the front seat and Uncle Jimmy took him to Craig Hospital here in Denver. And he took him to the rehabilitation ward. And what Josh got to witness was a man who was a new quadriplegic who was breathing through a tube in order to move his chair. So you can imagine at 10 years old, Josh was pretty impacted by that story and that, that, that visual. So he came home and one of his assignments was to write an essay about his day of empathy. And so he started writing his essay, typing up his essay, but he didn't send it to me initially. He sent it to Uncle Jimmy. Jimmy read it. He goes, this is amazing. And Jimmy sent it off to the headquarters of the American Disabled Veterans Association. They read it and they said, this is amazing. And they published it, Robert, in their national newsletter. So now all of a sudden, this, this story is going all around the country to disabled veterans in the newsletter. And they're like, kid, Denver, black belt, Denver, wait a minute. Our national convention is in Denver this year. Let's have him speak. So a couple of three months later, here comes Josh up to the podium, which, you know, is up to his eyes. And he's reading his essay. So at 10 years old, Josh was not only a junior black belt, but he was a published author and a keynote speaker. Not bad, right? <laughs> and what's so great is that the end of the story is I still am in contact with Josh and his family. And Josh is now in his 20s. 
And I was at his house for dinner a couple of years ago with him and his mom and her, and her new husband. And um, he was still talking about that experience. And, and when I share that story, I have people come up to me all the time, you know, saying how that story resonated with them. And here's what I always tell them. The reason it resonates inside of you is because there's a part of you inside of you that deeply wants to serve and be empathetic toward others. And when we learn to do that and we and we position our businesses from that perspective, that to me is thriving. It's just not what's in the balance sheet. It's being able to thrive financially. Of course, we want to do that. But to do it from a standpoint of service where we're making an impact in other people's lives. Well, and it's really demonstrates the power of story. Yes. Because because ultimately, that's what our life is about. Exactly. That's what our business is about. Yes. And that's what impacting others is about. And when you when you can understand the power of a story and now you help you know, your requirements help Josh create this story. But then his uncle Jimmy sharing it created opportunities. Absolutely. And I think that's so often, first of all, everything you and I do is, is about story, right? I mean, ultimately, I, as a coach, I'm helping people change the story of their past. Yes. Change the story that they believe about themselves in the present. Yes. So that they can grab onto a new story for their future. So ultimately, life life is about the stories we're telling ourselves and telling others, right? Marketing is ultimately all about the story you're putting out there. And so the reason that story, of course, is so empowering is because it captivated people and, and of course, the right influencers. And I think the challenge for so many is they, they don't think their story matters. It's so true. And, you know, I, I have one of my coaches say to me, Chris, you have to remember the things that you think are ordinary, mm. other people think are extraordinary. Mm. Because we're so close to it, we don't we don't understand it. And you know, it's interesting. As a as a continuation of Josh's story, I'll, I'll share this story as well. Uh, as part of my work, I also coach people who are aspiring to be speakers. Hmm. And um, so I share this with them when I talk about the power of story. And this is an offshoot of Josh's story. I was part of a mastermind group. I was invited to be part of a mastermind group here in Denver, and there were three different masterminds within this organization. And I was asked by the head of the organization to visit each one of the memberships and do a training of some sort. It was some sort of a business training. I think it was on the topic he asked me is, when you go to a training, how do you implement it in your business? It was something like that. And, and I think it went actually relatively well and I gave everyone value. And at the end, we had questions and answers. And in Two of those three groups, Robert, there were people who had heard me give my keynote at other events here in the Denver area. <laughs> and in two of those three meetings on two different days with two different people, when the first people in the question and answer period raised their hands, when I called on them, they said, can you tell us the story about the kid in the wheelchair? <laughs> Boom. And that's when it hit me. I'm like, I just gave them a whole hour worth of all this content, but they're going back to months ago when they heard me speak and they wanted to hear Josh's story because that's what moved them. 
So I would say, suggest anyone who's listening out there is get clear on your story, get clear on your why, why you do what you do, because that's what's going to inspire people. I, I always love Simon Sinek. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, Robert. Oh, yeah. Sinek has got, you know, the great thing on the power of why. And he has a great TED talk. And in that talk, there's some place where he's talking about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And he says, um, in August of 1963, a quarter of a million people didn't congregate on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to hear Martin Luther King Jr. De to, uh, deliver his I have a plan speech, <laughs> right? It was, I have a dream. It was his why, it was his story. Well, and, and they didn't gather to hear him. They gathered exactly. to hear many of the others. And, and That's right. One but of the it's, crazy... the most, it's the most famous speech in history. Well, and it was close for sure. Yeah, he <laughs> connected with his why, what his story was. And that's because there were many people that didn't agree with his policies, even within the civil rights movement. Oh, absolutely. In fact, right? yeah, we, we all know examples of, yes. of people that, that wanted to to you know get their rights by force. And exactly. And and he was committed to yeah. to, to peaceful um just peaceful activity and, and love. And he was committed to that. And 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 what's interesting is that. The other guys, and you, you know this as a speaker, right? They're all fighting for the the prime spot, and and he didn't care what spot he went up in, and yet his name is the only one stamped on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> well, and if I may share just one more brief story, of course, I heard this from one of his a man who was one of his best friends. Wow, um, his name. Um, was Dr. Um, or Reverend Harold Middlebrook. Dr. Middlebrook was um, one of the people who um, helped organize the voting rights movement in Selma. He helped organize the, um, the March on Washington. He was with Dr. King when he was assassinated in Memphis. And I was doing an event here in Denver where I was doing my board breaking experience workshop. And Dr. or Reverend Middlebrook was part of that. And he was 77 years old at the time. And a whole other beautiful story is he eventually did break his board with me. That's a whole other story. <laughs> but the night before we all got together with him and he was telling stories about his experience with Dr. King. Wow. And what many of us don't know, Robert, is that speech was not the one that he started that day <laughs> or the one he was scheduled to deliver. He had actually delivered the I Have a Dream speech the night before in Detroit. But months before, he had submitted another speech and the organizers were afraid of him, you know, revving up the crowd. So it was a very sedate speech he was giving. So anyway, he's there. It's August. It's hot. It's the middle of the afternoon. He's droning on giving the speech he had submitted. And there was a, a woman, an African-American actress who had been in Detroit the night before and heard him deliver the I Have a Dream speech. And so he's sitting there droning, droning on. She's sensing he's losing the crowd. And she shouts out from behind him, tell him about the dream, Martin. And he immediately breaks into the I Have a Dream speech, no notes, and the rest is history. <laughs> so I've always just been inspired by that story. And again, he was speaking from his heart. 
He was telling his story. He was telling his why. Well, and and obviously as a, as a public speaker instructor, as teaching people to speak, when the story is yours, when it truly is tied to your experience, tied to your why, mm-hmm. you you don't have to memorize it. Oh, no. You don't have to you don't have to drone through it. You don't have to because it's it's you. It's you. And and yeah. you're putting you out to the crowd in a way in a way that that resonates with the crowd because they know this feels real. This feels right. And and that's so powerful. So so that leads me to to one of the issues you talked about character in character development in part of the you know, as a, as a big part of your program, as a big part of personal development. And today we see so many entrepreneurs, um, I don't know, in social, in, in, in their website, in all these places, right? They, they go rent a, a mansion and go take pictures with, with the sports car out front. And they, they feel like they need to be somebody else in order to satisfy an audience, so you speak a little bit more into authenticity. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's that's a, a, a subject that's near and dear to my heart. And mm-hmm. and it's not to say that the monetary and the physical rewards are not nice things to have mm-hmm. and they're not important to have. I mean, we need money in order to survive, right? I've always loved the distinction between extrinsic versus intrinsic mm-hmm. goals. You know, the extrinsics are the sports car, the mansion, all those things. But the intrinsic is who we become as a human being, who we're being in that experience. And in my opinion, how we're able to serve others from that experience. And again, my my I guess my definition of success is someone who can have the experience intrinsically as well as extrinsically, because I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think there's some of us that get it wrong in the other direction. We think it's all about just giving, giving, giving and building ourselves intrinsically, but never getting any of the earthly rewards, if you will. Quite honestly, it's a it's a balance. It's a balance with that, because if we don't have success and money within our businesses, we're limited with the amount of people that we can serve. Right. Mm -hmm. So it is about this balance. But, you know, at the same time, you know, when I'm when I'm coaching speakers, for instance, there are many times we probably all have this experience where we're listening to a speaker. And if you were to look at their diction, look at how they put sentences together, look at their body language, there's nothing special about them. (laughs) But you're like moved to tears by what they're saying. Well, it's because they're authentic from a heart space. You can see other speakers who have all the right gestures, all the right voice inflections, all the right diction. And you're like, yeah, they're really good, but they don't move us. Hmm. And so it's again about having that balance. And when I coach speakers, you know, I think that when we have challenging times, I'll give you this story. When I first started speaking 10, 12 years ago, I had had pretty immediate success in the martial arts world. And now I'm moving into the speaking thing. And the speaking gigs just aren't coming at the same regularity that students did in the martial arts. So I'm like, you know, what's going on here? So I'm on the phone with my mom, who I shared before, I absolutely adore. And she's one of my biggest fans. 
And she's that one person. I have a one or two people in my life that I can call up and just vent. I don't have to put on any facade. I can just say, this is what I'm dealing with. Would you listen to me? So I'm on the phone with her and I'm like, mom, this isn't working and people aren't paying me and this, that, and the other. And she's just listening. So she lets me just exhaust myself with all of my complaints. And then she asks me this question. She says, Chris, you want to be one of those motivational speakers, huh? I said, yes, I do. He says, um, do you think anyone's going to want to listen to you if you've never had any challenges or if you've never had any problems or if you've never had to overcome any obstacles? Boom, right? You know, mind blow. It's like, oh my gosh, exactly. So people weren't going to connect with me or I was going to be able to connect with an audience if everything I touched turned to gold and everything I did was perfect. They were going to connect with me when I went through challenges and I was over, able to overcome them and help them through my experience. And that was, I, I, I've spent a lot of money and time and energy on coaching and speaking. That was probably the best speaker coaching I ever got was from my mom. But it's true. And so you don't want to be doing therapy up on stage, right? You got to be able you have to have processed what you've gone through. But when you can speak to it, from a, a standpoint of being authentic, having it, you know, have that emotion right underneath the surface and be able to have people feel what you felt, that that to me is one of the biggest pieces of power as a speaker is being able to make that connection with an audience. Yep. The, the message is in the mess. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right, Chris, what, what was the impact of, of being an author? writing a book. Yeah. You know, it was, it was twofold. It was first of all, a, an act, just like I've talked about being an entrepreneur, it was an act of personal development. My experience was, is that there was a tremendous amount of vulnerability in sharing my story. In fact, I didn't have this happen with my second book, but it happened with my first book, Black Belt Leadership. I almost had, how has it been put before? It's like author's remorse. So it's like you write it, it's done, it's in print. Somebody buys it from you, you hand it to them. And there's a part of you going, just don't read it. <laughs> you know, you bought it, it's done, You but you don't have to read it because, oh my gosh, you know, what if they disagree with what I said? What if I'm incongruent? Whatever, whatever. So that was the first part is getting over that hurdle. But number two, I think that it helped my business in a lot of ways. It helped it practically because it gave me this whole basis to build off of. So I could, well, let me put it this way. It helped give a sense of credibility that I didn't have before. Mm. Because I think people, even to this day, have a great admiration for people who have taken the time to author something. I think people have that. There's a veneration around that. But then from a practical standpoint, it gave me avenues to build my business that I didn't have before. I could do speeches on it. I could do workshops on it. I could do online programs on it. It opened up this whole, it allowed me all this material to do my weekly blogs, which was allowing me the ability to get out and bring my message to other people. It allowed me to get on podcasts. You know, both my books did. 
because now I had subject matter I could speak with. So I'm a huge proponent of people who feel are being called to write their story. And you know, going back to my old coach's advice, what we think is ordinary, other people think are, are extraordinary. We all have a story and we all have something to give. Oh, so good. All right, Chris, Little, we'll take a little diversion. What do you love to do in your free time? <laughs> free time. Well, I love to hike. I love to walk. Um, I did uh, back in 2014, I walked the Camino de Santiago. Oh, which nice. Was, uh, yeah, 500 mile walk across northern Spain. Yeah, love so that. I love being out in nature. Um, I, I love yoga. Um, I love uh, I love spiritual and personal development. So you'll oftentimes me see me watching things on the internet, just to, you know, part of just continuing to expand. I've got two grown sons, which I love spending time with. In fact, one was just over today. Um, in fact, I'm dog sitting his puppy right now. And so I love spending time with my boys. It, it's I had my children very early in life. And so now they're both grown. And now it's like having two adult friends. And that's been pretty awesome, too. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty fun place to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, all right, Chris, you've, you've shared quite a bit of business success. What was one of your biggest business challenges or current challenge? Yeah, well, I'll give an example from the martial arts world. Um, I, I shared before that back in 2008, 2009, um, I think the entire, many of the service organizations went through challenges when we were in our recession. And so as a result of that, I was like, I mean, my business had been humming along and all of a sudden things just started to slow down. And I was, I was literally Robert, I, I coached, I was coaching people on how to run martial arts schools and now it just wasn't working. And so I made probably the biggest business mistake of my life. I was coming up, I think it was 2010. I was coming up on the end of my lease. And I got in my mind that the way that I could put juice in my business was to relocate it. Mm. Okay. I thought, you know, if I just have a new a new location, it'll bring energy. I'll have drive-by traffic I didn't have before. So I found a space that on paper had three times the amount of drive-by traffic of my current location. And I spent a ton of money, regardless of what people will say, at least in martial arts, when you move a facility, it's going to cost you money, right? You buy new mats, new mirrors, blah, 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 blah. Well, I thought that when I made that move, it was going to bring this big influx of business and it didn't do anything. And I call it the biz the biggest business mistake I ever made. And if I would have done it again, I may have still moved locations at one point in time. But the lesson that I learned was, is the change didn't come from the physical change. There were changes I need to make inside of myself about how I was doing the business. And that... That lesson in and of itself would have saved me literally tens of thousands of dollars. So, and interestingly enough, when I do life coaching with people and they're talking, maybe they're difficult, they're having difficulty in their job, they're having difficulty in their relationship. You know, you always hear the story of people who are having difficulty in their marriages, and they're like, Well, if we just if we just buy a home, that'll probably be what we need. Well, let's just have a child, you know that no. <laughs> Deal with the issues and then take care of the stuff on the outside afterwards. So that was my own little little moment of crisis. 
of not listening to my own coaching advice. And that's what I would say is if you're having difficulty in your business, what are the things you can keep doing, right? What are the things you can stop doing? And what are the things you can start doing before you look on the outside to create what you think is going to be the Band-Aid that'll get you through? Well, and there's two levels of that, right? There's the inner work inside of you. And in the case of a studio business that has a facility is what's the inner work you can do inside, right? Because even the idea of new mats and new mirrors can make a huge impact without having to change change exactly. locations. And you know, as I share that story with you, I can I can get pretty pretty excited and inspiring. And so what I did is I started enrolling people in this vision and everyone like, yeah, move the school. That's what we need to do. And so it wasn't like I had anybody tell me, no, that's not a good thing to do. But in retrospect, all the all the problems that had led to my business softening before that came with you. There. They, they <laughs> came with me. They just moved the location with me. So that's what I would say. That was my biggest business mistake. Oh, so, so good. Thank you for the vulnerability. All right, Chris, what's the big dream? Well, the big dream for me is I would love to be able to continue to have my message move around the world, you know, particularly on a national level. I, I love speaking. I love going out, either doing my keynoting as well as my uh, my board breaking experiences where I go into corporations and they use the breaking of the board as a as a physical metaphor for breaking through challenges and, and overcoming limiting beliefs. And it would be my my dream is to be able to go out and do that work on a regular basis nationally, as well as continue to coach and build other leaders within organizations and the businesses that I help facilitate. And to not only have my message be something that can help people individually, but also help them become great leaders in their organizations and their families and their businesses, et cetera. Absolutely. Okay, Chris, you spent an hour with our entrepreneurial audience and you want to leave them with Chris Natsky's words of wisdom. What would you share? <laughs> well, one of the things that I say a lot in my talk, and it's actually all over my literature, is a champion. And a champion can be a champion in business, in martial arts, in life. Champions don't need to be told what to do. They just need to be reminded. And sometimes the reminding is having recollection of, oh, man, I used to be able to do this or I have this inside of me. That's one way of reminding, but also is changing your perception on things and having the wherewithal, having the strength, having the vulnerability to be able to step back sometimes and see if the things that we're doing, the way that we're being is really serving us and reminding ourselves because the most successful people that I've seen in the martial arts in business, in life, are the ones that are humble enough to take the time to look at themselves and reinvent themselves when it's necessary. So that's what I would leave you with. Chris, thank you so much for sharing today. What a, obviously wonderful stories, wonderful presence, and I just appreciate the impact you're making in the world. Thanks, my friend. It's been my pleasure. All the best. If you enjoy the show, please like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're struggling with stress, feel like life is out of control, run out of time before your to-do list is finished, well, we have a gift for you. Stop by AddValueMindset.com and claim your free gift today. In our next episode, 
Chris and Susan Beasley share with Robert Noel how working for someone else didn't allow them to live the life they desired. So they designed the life they wanted and built a business to support it. They have created the freedom to travel and grow their business to supplement their retirement income.